Uh, so today, uh, we're talking about this, this idea called unshakable faith. And part of what uh, I really feel like God wants to communicate through this whole series is the idea that uh, if we have the kind of faith that you see in the Bible, that it should be unshakable. It should be a kind of faith that our circumstances and the environment around us can affect, even when it comes to difficult circumstances. And I said before that um, most of my messages, my, my prep method for messages is I'll pray and I'll look at the month and I'll say, you know, what is it that, God, you want me to, to talk about? And I usually have like a rough idea on any given week for a month or two. But this idea of unshakable faith, uh, this was something that God even started talking to me about back in like April in my prayer times. And the reason, it, it, I just had this sense of like, especially when we come back in the building, especially when things start becoming a little bit more normal, but not, that we should be talking about this idea of unshakable faith and what it means to follow God through even the most difficult times. And I want to take a moment and I want to talk to uh, the kids who are out there and parents and kids. Uh, I love working with kids. I love talking to kids. I'm trying to be better at that every week. <laughs> so that's especially a message for the, for the parents out there. Uh, so we're trying to be better and better at that. Where This is something that uh, people all around the world are trying to figure out. Even the big uh, curriculum makers are sitting down and having this conversation of, you know, what should kids' ministry look like now? But I want to take a minute and talk to the kids. And I was supposed to grab a prop from downstairs and I forgot, but that's okay. Uh, we play this game at kids and at youth ministry, and it's a lot of fun. And the way the game works is uh, you have a chocolate bar, and it's in the wrapper. And the goal is, who, is whoever can eat a chocolate bar the fastest wins the game. But there's, there's a caveat to it. The caveat is you can't bend your elbows. And if you've ever tried something like that, if you've ever tried, like if I wanted to take a drink of water right now, I'm not going to hold it like that because I'll spill it. If I wanted to take a drink of water right now, but I couldn't bend my elbows, what are my, what are my choices, right? I can try and like dip it up and pour it into my face, and we know that's not going to end well. And so when we're watching kids try this, and so kids, if you've got like a chocolate bar or something at home, try this at some point in the, in, in the break or after Try this. Grab one and hold it and don't bend your elbows and try and feed yourself. You can't. And you have, there's times where like, I'm watching kids try and like throw it in the air and catch it. And if they're really athletic, sometimes they, they'll just take it in the face and they'll have chocolate all over their face. And there's so much, you watch this and there's a teaching lesson behind this game. It sounds lame. The, the, the youth and the kids love this game, but it sounds lame looking at it but there's a real teaching moment in this game. And what happens, and kids, this is one for you. What happens is you realize that, the, you know, the rules are is you have to eat. I didn't say you had to eat yours. And you eventually see this like dawning realization on people's faces where they go, hold on a second. And they talk to a partner and then they feed each other. Now, nowadays, especially that's not a game we can play, but... When you, when you realize that, and so kids, when you're, when you're going through this game and you're trying to, 
eat your chocolate bar, you're going to get all messy. You're going to miss. Your chocolate bar is going to get all messy. If you have carpet, it's going to get covered in hairs. If you're my children, that doesn't matter. They're going to eat it anyways. But when you realize that you can take care of somebody else and they can take care of you and you can win that way, it's like this dawning realization on their faces. And there's some circumstances I want us to understand, and kids especially, there's some times when we're in a situation that we can't take care of ourselves right. That if we try, we make a mess, we get messy, we wreck the thing that we're using. There's some times that we just can't take care of ourselves. And so today we're going to talk about the idea of what are some of those times. And I want you to think about this. That's the question for today. What are some times it's hard for you to take care of yourself? My, uh, I was going to say youngest daughter, no, second daughter, uh, Elizabeth. There's times when she'll wake up in the night and she doesn't have her blankets on herself and she doesn't know how to wrap herself back up again. And she will sit there and wail. She wants her blankets. Sometimes they're literally just bald at her feet, but she, she tries to pull them up and they fall off and she gets stressed out. And so we have to come in and help her. And sometimes there's times when we just can't help ourselves and we make it worse. So I want you to think about what are some times that could be like as we're going through the message here. And we've been going through this book of Philippians. And Philippians is an amazing, amazing book. I've really gained an appreciation for it. I've been doing my own personal study on Philippians, but also the video Bible study we're doing on Thursdays is also based on Philippians. And I've been getting some joy out of like sitting down, praying, writing my message, and then having the video study and seeing what aspects that the, the author of the study was also pulling out of the text. And I, him and I are following different paths through the book, but seeing some of these shared concepts coming out has been really cool. And... The book of Philippians, you can really sum it up in this single phrase. And it gets mentioned early on. And the phrase is this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And last week we talked about what this phrase, to live is Christ, means. And kind of a Coles Notes summary of it is that to live is Christ means to have such a life that Christ is only. Not just Christ is first but that Christ is only. That we don't have a concept of what it means to live for ourselves. That everything we do, our wealth, our finances, our time, it's all filtered through this idea of what does Jesus want me to do with this right now? And specifically not tied to the idea of benefiting ourselves. That sometimes God calls people to prosper and that's great. And sometimes he doesn't. And that's great. But the, the emphasis is on following Christ exactly where we are. And I want to explain, I want to explore the second part of this, this message, this phrase, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Am I echoing a little bit? I sound hot to myself, but I can never tell what I sound like anyways. You're an expert, you're great. So this phrase, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm going to sit on the second part of it, to die as gain for this service. And to understand what he means, we have to go through the text and kind of look at what Paul means about this concept of gain and this concept of loss. And he goes through more of loss. So starting off, I wanted to give a definition 
that I think is faithful to the text of Philippians of what this word loss means. So loss to Paul is anything that makes our lives about us. This is Paul's concept of loss through the book of Philippians. So he spends a lot of time in chapter 3 using this word, but all throughout the, the, the whole text of the letter, any concept Paul has of, of losing out or missing something, it's all tied to this idea of not really hoping that something's going to happen and not seeing it. It's tied to this concept of anything that focuses on me is loss. And he uses Jesus as an example. He says, even Jesus, who was God, didn't see his equality with God as to something that he could use to his own advantage. And if there's one person on earth, I said this last week, if there's one person on earth who deserves to stand in our midst and say, this is about me and how I feel, it's Jesus. And Paul says, Jesus, who was God, didn't see his equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. He made himself a servant and he gave his life for everyone. So Paul is saying that the author and perfecter of our faith, the person that we all look to as an example, didn't use his position with God to his own advantage. He used it to serve and minister to other people. That Jesus didn't live a life to take care of himself. That there's some aspects of Jesus' life that lead to him being praised above all names. But Jesus didn't come to make that happen for the sake of his own benefit. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom. And there are things that we consider life and we say, you know, I've earned my keep. I've de I deserve my place here. I'm a big person that I, I have a good work ethic, that I believe in working hard. I believe in making sure I'm doing my time, stuff like that. And it doesn't so much for me connect to the idea that I deserve what I got, but I do have a strong sense of I don't deserve it if I didn't work for it. I have that kind of work ethic. And a lot of people I've met have this concept of, you know what, I've earned this and I deserve this. And we carry that perspective into all different areas of our life. We say, I've done something and I, I earned this. I deserve something here. But the problem is, when we come into spirituality, when we come into our relationship with God, the last thing we want is what we deserve. I want you to understand me here. Because the Bible talks about what we deserve. That it says the wages of sin, the, what you earn through your lifestyle, is what? It's death. But the eternal life that we receive from God is a gift. So loss to Paul is anything that makes it about us. And when we sit back and we say, I need blank, we can start walking down that path of destruction. And I want, I'm going to clarify here where our needs actually come in later. I want you to hear my heart here. 
But we need to start off with this perspective that if we come in with a concept of I deserve, the, the next word that should come out of our mouths is the word death. Because that's what lines up with the Bible. We deserve punishment. But this path that Jesus laid out for us, it starts with don't use your position, don't use what you think you've earned to your own advantage. And Paul drives this point home really hard. He says, whatever place we may think we have to ask, whatever place we may think we have to brag, to say that we've earned it, he says, you know what? I've got more. Paul's calling us out. He's challenging us. He's saying, if you think you've got something that gives you a right to say, I deserve this, I have more. And in Philippians 3, he goes through and he gives a list. And he says, you know what? I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And I was a Pharisee. And in terms of legalistic righteousness, in terms of what God had asked of the people of Israel prior to the coming of Christ, he calls himself faultless. He says, in all the ways that, that you can earn your way towards God, I have done that. That I had so much zeal that I persecuted the church. That he attacked God's move because he had so much zeal for earning his place. But then Philippians 3, 7 and 8, we'll have it on the screen. He says this. He says, whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how Paul uh, used this word filthy and how it had a really terrible connotation. If you ever want to, I'll try and uh, look up what verse it was. But our text translates it filthy or dirty, and the actual Hebrew word was really disgusting. And in this context, it, a lot of our texts translate this word garbage as garbage. But if you wanted to get truest to the sense of the text, it's saying feces. Like, that's a really strong word. And Paul is saying everything is a loss compared to the fact that I know Christ. Even the things that were gains to me are loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And we like to think that Paul's calling out false gains, or Paul is calling out false gains. Because he says, you know what, I was a Pharisee. And we can look at that and say, that was actually bad though. But that's not his context, because he says... Yeah, I was a Pharisee, but in terms of legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. And that was something that was good. He says, you know, I was a Hebrew, born a Hebrew. That was something that was good. Some of them were negative, but others were very positive, at least for his time. Paul isn't saying don't boast about bad things. Paul isn't even saying don't boast. That's not the point of this verse. He believes that, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that Paul considers anything in his life that doesn't specifically bring more glory and recognition to God directly as loss. So his legalistic righteousness 
Jesus called the Pharisees out on this. He called the teachers of the law out on this. He said, you're making so many rules and you're not doing anything to help people get through them. His complaint wasn't even necessarily with the rules. Because especially with the teachers of the law, a lot of the rules that they were carrying were from the Old Testament. And Jesus had a problem with the rules. He had a problem with the, the unbearable load that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law put on top of people. But the big thing he called people out on was he said, you're not doing anything to help the other people. And so Paul's legalistic righteousness here, that it is accomplished earning his place, Paul is saying this is a loss because it hasn't drawn people into recognizing God's glory. It's driven people away. And I want to rephrase what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, for the sake of prospering the Lord rather than myself, I'm going to look at, all my, I'm going to look at myself. I'm going to look at all my successes and my points of pride, everything that gives me position and strength and power and recognition. Anything that isn't explicitly about pointing right back to God, I'm going to consciously consider on like the tally sheet of my life that those things are on the law side. Anything that builds me up and doesn't point back to God and his goodness is loss. Anything that pushes God's kingdom, that tells more people about it, that glorifies God more, check. Anything that doesn't do that is a big X. You know, this is Paul's big, my life is not mine, it's Christ's. And this ties into the message we were talking about last week. And how do we practically do this? And this is where I want to start addressing this idea of need. Our needs are important. God built us to be in need for him. That was the design from Adam and Eve. That it wasn't just, I'm putting you guys together, leaving you alone in the garden. That he walked around with them. He had a relationship with them. And so we're made to need God. And I don't want this to sound like we shouldn't push for our own needs. We shouldn't try to meet our own needs. That's too simplistic. It's not really understanding the subtlety in the text. But I want you to think about it like this. I thought about it and I was trying to think of a good way to phrase this question. And so the question is this. Am I aiming for something that should go to God? And if so, give serious thought to what you're saying. I won't blanket say that it's wrong, but I will say that it's a good rule of thumb. Uh, one of my favorite authors, he's a very, very humble man named Francis Chan. Uh, if you ever have a chance to read any of his books, find them. If you ever have a chance to watch any of his sermons, find them. Francis Chan. And he told a story once about how he had finished uh, a church service and that they'd done uh, worship and they'd done the message. And somebody came up to him later and said, you know what, I wasn't happy with the service. And he cares about that. We always care about that idea. But someone comes to him and says, you know what, I wasn't happy for the, with the service. And so he asks, ooh, try not to make noise. He asks, Why? What's, like, what's, the, what's the, the issue that you have? And the person says, well, the worship really didn't feel like it was for me. It didn't minister to me. 
And, and Francis Chan in his great humility said, you know what, I'm very, hard, I'm very sorry to hear that, but you need to understand the worship wasn't for you. It was for God. So in what areas are we aiming for something that should go to God? Are we asking to serve in a church ministry? Great. Are we asking that all the work of the ministry appeals to our personal feelings so that we feel honored and respected and our priorities feel focused on? There's a trap there. That we serve to honor God, respect God, and take care of God's priorities, not our own. I've told this story before about how I, I served in the youth ministry years ago. And uh, I inherited a youth leader who their perspective was, uh, if I'm here, all the teenagers need to be, if I'm speaking, they need to be deadly silent. If we're playing a game, they need to be respectful and quiet. And if I don't feel like you're respecting me, I'm going to call you out hard on that. And part of, part of working with teenagers is, is understanding, especially with the newest generations, that respect is something that's earned, that you can get obedience. But if you want respect, you've got to consistently sow into their lives and say, I'm here for you and I care about you. And what would happen is if anyone was ever out of turn, he would like violently shout at this person. And people, it got to the point that some, some of the youth were afraid of this leader. And so I pulled them aside and I said, and I said you know, here's our perspective here, that we want, we want order, we want respect, but you're, you're creating fear. You're taking the respect owed God and you're putting it on yourself. We can't do that. And they didn't want to listen. And so eventually we said, you know what, maybe this isn't the right place for you to serve. We're, we're glad that you're serving, but maybe this isn't the right place. It's a great topic. It's a great concept of respect and order and everything like that. But that we were here to draw people into respecting God. And all this person was doing was causing them to fear him. All the attention was on them. So are we aiming for something that should go to God instead? I've always said, this is a little bit of a sidebar. If, if we feel that sense of like being offended welling up in us, for me, that's an automatic, take a step back. I feel like I'm taking over right now. Offendedness is sort of like the, the throne in my life, at least. I'm convinced that's in a lot of lives. But in my life, if I start feeling offended, that's when I've started stepping up and putting myself in the throne. So I try very hard to not be offended by people. To, and it means assuming the best. It means... Pretending you didn't hear things that people have told you. But I try very hard to not be offended by people. Uh, I, I, uh, a local pastor thought he had offended me because him and I were trying to get connected and we were like two ships passing and we kept making phone calls. And I texted them and they said, Are you, is everything okay? Have I offended you? And I texted back and I said, oh, I need you to understand. It will take a lot more than that. It will take a lot more than some missed phone calls. I just assume you're busy and I'm busy. Because when I start feeling offended is when I step up into the throne and I say, but your respect is due to me. In what ways are we aiming for something that should be going to God? And this is the trap of human sinfulness. I've always said people are a pendulum. And when we start a good thing, it can swing too far. 
Anything we do, we can unconsciously turn it to also be about us. And then soon enough, it becomes only about us. We want God to be honored, but we also want to feel honored too. We want God to enjoy our worship, but we do too. And if the us side of us doesn't happen, we're willing to stand up and say this isn't good. That we can stand, stand here and we can worship God, but if we don't feel good out of it, we're willing to say this isn't a good thing. You know, Paul's concept was radically different. He said if something leads him to being in prison and more people hear about Christ, that's a win. That's a good thing. If God's name gets lifted up and people drag Paul through the streets in chains and whip him. Amazing. If something causes him to suffer and causes more people to serve, that is a win. If Paul's death leads to more Christ, then it's gain. I want you to understand that. Paul's concept of success in Jesus was entirely separated from his own comfort and desires. And here's a secret. When we get to that point, when we're willing to lay down our lives and say, even my death, if it brings more Christ, is gain, your needs will be met. And we'll talk about that. Now, this idea of living so outside for other people, there's so many different practical ways. And I want to take a moment and talk to the kids. That this is something that you guys can do really well. And we can start in this one simple place. One way to think less about ourselves and more about other people is in how we talk to people. One thing we're trying to teach my son is always think about other people first. Don't fight for what you want. Fight for what the other person wants. And we start to see that sometimes. We start to see it where he's in a fight with his sister and he's playing with a toy that she really wants. And if you've ever had something like that with your siblings where it's like, I have this toy. I have every right to this toy. And my sibling wants it and they're throwing a fit. And we make a conscious choice as parents to recognize, is this actually legitimate or not? If Elizabeth is just melting down, because she wants something that Caleb has. The first question is, does Caleb have it first? Yeah? Okay, Elizabeth, stop. It's not about just greasing the squeaky wheel. We won't need to make sure it's right. And so if you've ever, kids, been in a circumstance like that where you're like fighting with a sibling and you're right, stop right there and say, what can I do to care about the other person? And so the times when my son goes, okay, she can have the toy just for the sake of making her happy is amazing. I want to show you guys a video. It's in the service list. And this is a, one thing that's been amazing about um, all of the, the YouTube and videos and everything like that is there's been so many creative people out there. And this is a, a video series called Kid President. We've got a, a quick little clip from him and talking about this idea of like, here's 20 things that we can say more. And I think this is a really practical way, kids, for you guys and families to, to ask this question, what can I do more of to think of more people? 20 things we should say more often. Number 20, thank you. 
If you can't think of something nice to say, you're not thinking hard. And this video, he said one thing that it just, it shocked me. When he talked about the barbecue sauce comment, he says, I have barbecue sauce on my shirt too. And I just heard that and I'm like, oh, okay. But then he says, before you point out the barbecue sauce on somebody else's shirt, look at the barbecue sauce on your shirt too. Jesus said something like that. Before you point out the speck in somebody else's life, I take a look at the log in yours. So kids, this is our practical for you guys. Say nice things. Just like he said at the end, if you can't think of something nice to say, you're not thinking hard enough. Now getting back into this message, this idea of, of success in Jesus, that this power of the concept behind death is gain. It's the conviction that seeing God's name lifted up and seeing him receive more glory and honor is the victory condition. It's not one of them. It's the victory condition. That nothing that happens to us in life is something that we say, yeah, but that's not a win. We ask this question, what, what prospers God? What makes his word clearer to other people? And if we prosper to see that done, great. And if we suffer for it, 
great. Now, I want to make an admission here. We are built to want our needs met. We are built to think about such things. We are built to need God. And in many ways, this desire to make sure our needs met are actual. This is something that we legitimately need. Needs is a healthy one. I just think Paul has a different approach. Now, we've got to remember the context here. We've been sitting in chapter 3 a lot, and I'm going to end off with this last point. We've been sitting in chapter 3 a lot. And so Paul is talking about, throughout the book of Philippians to this point, he's talking about this battle between the self-focused drive for feeling more confident in the natural versus the spirit-focused drive for confidence in Jesus. That this is the tension that Paul is talking about. How much are we fighting to have a self-fulfilled sense of confidence and success that's focused on the natural versus how much are we pushing to have the spirit's sense of success for Jesus apart from ourselves? And there is a deeper unmet need that's driving both sides of that. Both times we're trying to meet our needs. And so really, if we think about it, the battle for all of us, boils down to this. Do we let God, God meet our needs or do we try and meet them by our own power? Do we let God meet our needs or do we try to meet them by our own power? Do we try to force them to happen so that we feel certain things? We feel respected. We feel honored. And, you know, it's in this context that Paul says something. And this is one of the better known verses in the Bible. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. And I want you to understand when he's saying this, he's talking about this battle. He's talking about this tension between, are we fighting to take things that are meant for God? Or are we going to sit back and let God really fulfill our needs? Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And here's the follow-up with that. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so this is Paul's prescription for this battle. This is what he's saying. This is what we need to do to stop this cycle. And so the first thing he says is rejoice. And he says always, and he says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And this isn't look at the silver lining. I want us to understand this. We, can, we take this to mean if we look at a situation and we look hard enough that we can see a good thing in it. No, it's saying always look at the Lord and his victories. And it doesn't matter what happens to us. If somebody else understands more about God, it's a victory. If somebody else hears about Christ, it's a victory. If somebody else comes to a relationship with him, it's a victory. The Bible says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 people who don't need to repent. If you want the joy of the Lord, it's focused on drawing more people in. It's not focused on the fact that we don't need them. It's focused on the people who do. And we think there's some deeply spiritual, strange meaning by this phrase, re rejoice in the Lord. 
But it's literally like saying, enjoy your boat. It's take it at face value. There is God, so rejoice. And the Bible says he's always there. So we should always be able to rejoice. If you're in the Lord's presence, rejoice, plain and simple. But the second thing is we can seek gentleness. If you've ever noticed, the more self-focused and own needs focused we become, the less gentle we are. They say if you, if you try and save someone who's drowning, you run the risk of being drowned yourself. Because the person in their panic will claw and pull at you to do anything to keep themselves above water. And I, I believe we all get like that at some point. If we feel like our needs are being threatened enough, if we feel like our safety and our security is being threatened enough, we skip the gentle part and go right to forceful. But yeah, the Bible says always be gentle, but this is a time where we need to not be. Right? And that's why Paul recommends this step. If we always prioritize gentleness, we'll always build and honor the body of Christ. And our needs will be met more. I've met a lot of people who consider themselves good, but you ask other people and they're like, yeah, that person's mean. And that drives people away. But I've never met someone who other people saw them as gentle. And the criticism has been, yeah, this person's so gentle, I want nothing to do with them. I've never heard that before. Thirdly, combat anxiety with prayer and thankfulness. And again, this thankfulness, it isn't saying, thank you, God, for this silver lining. It's saying, thank you, God, that you are here. Situate your prayer life in the thankfulness that comes from serving God, who will win every battle and be ultimately victorious, and in whose power we will sit forever. Be thankful that if you're following and serving Jesus, you're on the side that results in an eternity of perfection, no matter what's going on right now. And then here's what we can expect out of it. The peace of God to guard our hearts and our minds. Basically, everything we think, everything we feel. Or, everything inside of us. And there's a key concept here. The peace that passes understanding. My translation says it transcends all understanding. I like that some translations say it just passes it. It's not about you understanding it. It's not about giving you something that makes you feel peaceful. It's about that sense of peace that you're just like, it's good. I don't understand why, but it's good. There's almost a sense that God's peace should be coming out of a place that we can't grasp. I question myself if my sense of peace is coming from something that I understand and I can wrap my head around. I often ask, is this right? Do I have peace in the right thing here? You see, in our nature, we seek false peace. We seek the absence of problems, but that's not peace that's quiet. It's, they're different. We want quiet. We need peace. And peace can come no matter what's happening around us. God goes for real peace inside of our hearts. And that peace doesn't depend on anything outside. And so, see, God's promise that if we do things his way, that we'll end up protecting the inside of us, no matter what's happening on the outside. And that is obviously the superior way of doing things. And you know how it is with life. No matter how good you are at something, no matter how new or nice something is, eventually it breaks down. Talking about the idea of a boat. You buy a boat. You can take 
pristine care of it, sooner or later, it will leak. Sooner or later, it will sink. And that can be disappointing at times because everything in this world is temporary and partially broken. But God's peace, it affects the inside of us. It doesn't need the outside. It doesn't need the outside circumstances. It's a superior peace. It's the kind of peace that you can rely on no matter what. Not only because it's directly from God, but because it can come in even the worst of times. 